Good morning, and it's time to just take a second and uh, put our feet up, so to speak, as we enjoy perhaps a cup of coffee early in the day, and 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 take a look, review in our minds some of the funny stuff we've seen lately during this COVID nineteen pandemic. We saw an article here a couple of days ago, written by a university, a York University professor named Julia Crete. The article is called "COVID nineteen parody songs are the spoonful of sugar we need right now." Julia Crete joins us from. Toronto. Good morning and welcome to the program. Thank you, Sterling. Thanks a, so much for inviting me for an interview. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us, Professor Crete. Julia, you're a fan of this stuff and, like most of us, have a lot of time on your hands these days. So you've been, you've taken to identifying and, and actually well, b- b- processing all of these uh, videos and, and projects, these COVID projects. Now, the, the funny part for me has been um, the funny stuff from the celebrities, and some of it is truly hilarious, but we kind of expect that julia don't we the funny stuff for me is from the regular folks who just decided again with far too much time in their hands to well let's do something for fun well you know i mean i think the celebrities have been suffering from a lack of attention oh yes um uh but uh, yeah the people the folks at home who've just picked up you know their phones mostly people are recording on their phones mm-hmm. and uh it's brilliant some of it is is, is truly wonderful um, and and really unexpected, and people have loved it. You know, d- tens of millions of people have watched uh, homegrown homegrown comedy and, and and song parodies in particular because it's easy to rewrite the lyrics um, and familiar songs. You know, you play off the tone of the familiar song. Sure, it's really it's a wonderful genre. Before we get into some of your favorites, and you've identified a, a, quite a list in, in the piece you wrote for the conversation, you also started off by noting a distinction between parody and satire. Mm-hmm. Remind us of the distinction, Julia, please. Well, it's not, it's not a hard and fast distinction by any means. Nothing in satire, no definitions in, in satire ever fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we tend to think of satire as having, it has a target, it has a real bite. You want to take somebody down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, that's why Trump was the revival of satire, um, because so many people recognized that, that he, he was thin-skinned and, and it was easy to make fun of him. Um, but parody somewhat different. Um, you know, the thing that you note in these songs, aside from Randy Rainbow, Rainbow who, who really is a true satirist, um, but most of these songs uh, are affectionate. They're silly. They're, you know, you've taken a song you really love and, and you've turned it into, you know, an emblem of your current situation. And so there's, there's a laugh at the song being rewritten and, and mm-hmm. you're laughing about your situation. And so it's, it's, it's parody tends to be much more lighthearted. Um, and and sort of self-mocking um, rather than targeted towards somebody else. Interesting, but you did mention Randy Rainbow, and of course he's he's had this thing, and it, it's an enormous hit on uh, YouTube, uh, A Spoonful of Clorox. <laughs> 
<laughs> which, yeah, hard which, not to laugh. Well, it really is. Uh, it, it's uh, it's difficult to keep a straight face through through most of this stuff. But that one is is particularly hilarious. But you're right. You're talking about um, uh, familiar songs, and and I I wouldn't dare sing. I can clear a room in seconds by trying to sing. But but imagine supercalifragilisticexpialidocious being sung as super nasty cataclysmic COVID nineteen virus. And it doesn't take much. You can hear the music as you say it. And and so people just decided to, well, here I am. Uh, and, and again, uh, the classic, uh, the Bee Gees Staying Alive song, which, of course, that's the CPR song. It's really interesting. You know, all over the world, they use the Bee Gees Staying Alive, Julia, uh, to, teach, mm. to teach CPR. That's the perfect beat. Oh, I didn't know that. It is. It's the perfect beat for CPR. So, and of course, the perfect song in the process so that's it's okay. it's enormously popular for a whole bunch of reasons and, and it's going through this revival from saturday night fever all over again and now here we are in 2020 staying inside to the same beat and the same song it's great fun it really is but you know it depends on uh, parody also depends on, on audiences knowing the referent right mm-hmm. yeah you have to know the original song Otherwise, it's not quite so funny. Um, so it, you, it's a, it all plays with popular culture. And because we all consume popular culture, um, it's, it's easy to rework it. Uh, but an obscure song wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, they, they, one of the articles or one of the uh, items that you mentioned in your article, Julia, is, the, mm. is, is a family who uh, one commentator cleverly called the Von Trapped family singers, who uh, <laughs> mom and dad and four kids uh, put together uh, One Day More from Les Mis, a, a pretty well-known song, but <laughs> perhaps, yeah. perhaps a version none of us had imagined before. Yeah, and and that kind of family, you know, I think the group stuff, and particularly the family uh, uh, creations, are really wonderful. Because, again, they speak to sort of everyone's experience. You know, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is, it's a childhood song for so many of us. And... uh, to revive that kind of those kinds of, of, of songs that have such resonance for us in particular moments um, and rewrite them for another reason entirely. Um, that's a, there's something wholesome about it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Well, absolutely. That, yeah. That you're taking songs of innocence and, um, and, and turning them into songs of experience, but, you know, laughable songs of experience. Yeah. That's that's the wonderful play. It's between innocence and experience. Well, you know, it's I suppose as surprising as as anything is to find out how many weird owls there really are in this world, <laughs> Julia. And uh, there's one in every family, as it turns out, almost right. <laughs> well, either you're going to laugh together, or you're going to cry together, or maybe you're going to do both together. Yeah. But I suspect that you know the people who have survived best together are those that have found. Some way to make each other laugh. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we keep being served up material. You were talking about Mr. Trump and some of the things that he keeps saying that people find so easy to satirize. Justin Trudeau is not exempt from those uh, moments either. Uh, speaking moistly uh, more, made more than a few Canadians laugh and uh, inspired more than a few retorts, shall we say. Oh, that was just a brilliant moment. 
Um, and uh, now what was the, the fellow's name? Brock um, Tyler from Edmonton. Yeah, Rock, Rock Tyler from Edmonton. Now he has a history of doing these videos. He's been doing these these this kind of political satire, and it is satire. Oh sure. Um, he's been doing this for at least four or five years already. But this song, um, it was just a moment of absolute brilliance. Um, and the wonderful thing about it is that you know. Tyler was interviewed and he said, you know, Trudeau recognized pretty quickly that he'd said something absolutely ridiculous and he owned it. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a way that makes it easier for us to laugh at it as well, because, you know, if you like Trudeau, then, you know, you you can see it as, uh, again, this in this Horatian mode of sort of self-mockery. If you don't like him, well, then it turns into satire. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's fun for the whole family then, isn't it? Exactly. So we, all of this stuff that we've been talking about, is, is rel- that's the other part. That's, the, that's how it completes the circle, isn't it, Julia? Because not only do these people have an opportunity to play around and produce fun stuff, but then everybody can see it. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the Internet, as we all say, is a, is a sort of, you know, it's a democratizing platform. Anybody can use it. Anybody can, uh, you can watch anything on it. And, I mean, it has its upsides and it has its downsides. But for satire, again, it's brilliant because somebody laughs at something and they're like, they're more likely to pass it on, you know. Oh, hey, sure. look at this. Yeah, have you seen this one? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Julia. And, yeah. No, no. I was just going to say I, I'm, I'm, I'm out of time, and I'm grateful for yours. Oh. And I just wanted to make sure that people listening to us could go to theconversation.com, which is where we first spotted your article a few days ago. COVID nineteen parody songs are the spoonful of sugar we need right now. By our guest Julia Crete from York University, and oh, lots of links. You can see uh, a lot of the videos we've been talking about. You just click on them right there on the article, or uh, you can if easily find out how to get to them. Great. Peace, Julia. A nice uh, bit of lightness that uh, we could use during all of this stuff. Absolutely. The, the, the more we laugh, the, the better we'll feel. Good deal. So Th- have a spoonful of Clorox with every meal. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being with us this morning. Appreciate it very much. A pleasure. Thanks for the, for the invitation, Sterling. It's my pleasure. Uh, time, as uh, we are seeing across the country now with uh, various provinces introducing, well, relief measures. We're getting to be allowed to go out a little bit more. Restaurants and patios and uh, some of us back to work in some situations. And all of that has involved uh, being uh, more of us traveling. So as more of us are getting back out on the streets, we're noticing the price of gas is going back up. The one positive of this whole uh, pandemic and lockdown has been quite a precipitous drop in the price of gas, which appears to be over. Or is it? Let's find out. Michael Irvin is with us. Mr. Irvin is a senior vice president with the Kent Group, a veteran petro sector analyst, joining us this morning from Victoria. Michael, good to talk to you. It's been forever. Good morning. Well, yeah, good morning, Sterling. Uh, good to be talking to you again. It's good to have you with us. So we did enjoy a few short weeks of really quite attractive, uh, a strange word to use, where we're all locked down and couldn't use uh, the much gas, but th- those prices got to be uh, down to le- levels that we hadn't seen in quite some time. Well, that's right. And, and there really is a result of what I call a perfect storm of, of uh, things that have benefited consumers with uh, crude prices having dropped 
tremendously, and as well as that, uh, the actual commodity price of gasoline going down uh, over and above what we've what the crude price has done for consumers. So it was a combination of of reduced demand at a time. And I'd really like you, could you take a second here, Michael, and tell us a little bit more of the backstory between this Russia Saudi Arabia head-on clash that saw prices uh, the other half of that perfect storm you were talking about the uh, artificial uh, if you will the manipulated drop in prices what's the, the story and is that still going on well it is still going on but the, the story is simply this that uh, saudi arabia wanted to bring crude prices up by reducing, uh, for the OPEC countries that Saudi Arabia is a member of, mm-hmm. by reducing crude output. Uh, OPEC does not uh, manipulate prices. They manipulate supply, supply, which in turn causes prices to go up or down. With the United States having much, much more production of crude oil now than they did 10 years ago as a result of uh, shale crude production, that has put pressure on uh, global prices as a result of really oversupply of crude oil now compared to what it was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So Russia is not a member of OPEC, and up until recently they have been cooperating with OPEC in keeping their supplies limited. But as the crude price has stayed low, well, that has put pressure on a lot of countries, including Russia and OPEC countries, to, well, frankly, cheat on what they agreed to do by producing more crude than, uh, than they agreed to in order to get more revenue. Sure. Um, so that's what has broken down. But Saudi Arabia decided to effectively enforce things by, well, you know, by dropping their price and causing the, the global, dropping their production and causing the price to go down. So that's what we see. There's a little more discipline in, amongst those groups now. So we are seeing an increase in crude prices, but they're certainly far from uh, what they have been a year ago. It was the storage issue that you raised just a moment ago that I wanted to come back to. And this is this is what confuses a lot of people, Michael, because apparently with there was such a glut of oil on the world market because the demand had dropped off with a lot of people simply being locked in. They, they weren't, nobody was driving. Combine that with, uh, again, the relentless production of, of oil to the point where storage space became a real concern. And we actually hit a point a few weeks ago where the, the price of oil was negative, where people were, producers were actually paying people to take oil off their hands because they, they, it still kept coming. Is that over? Well, and that certainly is part two of, of why we see low crude prices, in addition to OPEC and, uh, and uh, Russia not agreeing. Uh, global demand for crude oil has plummeted as mm-hmm. a result of uh, a decreasing global demand for products like gasoline and diesel and, uh, and jet fuel. So uh, what we have there now is, is a lot of production going into pipelines and onto marine tankers getting transported to major storage terminal facilities like in Cushing, Oklahoma, which is where an awful lot of crude oil in the United States is stored before going off to refineries. They've become full. Mm -hmm. And, of course, um, people that own that product want to move it. They're getting product in as a result of contracts, such as uh, contracts traded on the uh, futures exchange, but nowhere to put it. And so we saw that one day 
uh, drop in, in uh, futures prices to into negative territory as yeah. a result of that. Mike, well, what, just a curiosity question, because you mentioned jet fuel. And, and again, consumers don't think of that. We, were, we concern ourselves with the price of gas at the pump. But in terms of overall consumption, the big picture, the one you look at every day, what percentage of daily consumption of, of, of oil products is jet fuel? Because, of course, there's been literally almost none consumed lately. Yeah. If we take a barrel of crude oil and, and, and portion it into what that gets turned into, it's roughly this. A third of that barrel will eventually become gasoline. Another third will eventually become diesel fuel. And uh, not quite a third would become jet fuel, but that is the biggest part of that one-third remaining piece of the pie. In, in addition to jet fuel are other products such as uh, heating fuels and kerosene and lubricant feedstock, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, jet fuel would, would be perhaps around one-fifth of that barrel. Interesting stuff. And, of course, there's been virtually no consumption of jet fuel now for months, and it doesn't look like uh, anything's going to be ramped up in that sector anytime soon either, does it? Well, it doesn't. You know, we're seeing a bit of startup, but I, I think um, with, with the airlines uh, really going from zero to maybe... 20% of, of their normal capacity, uh, it's going to be a long time before we see uh, an increase in jet fuel consumption. And, and that means that refineries still have to, have to deal with a, a sea change in terms of how, what they make and how they configure their refineries on a day-to-day basis. Interesting stuff, Michael. Let me, let me take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll talk about boiling it down to the summer of 2020, which for a lot of Canadians is going to be uh, mostly involving staying home, driving around, uh, doing a little exploring, the old staycation ethic at play this year. And we'll talk about petroleum and oil and how to budget for all of that stuff as we plan our staycation for summer 2020. I'm Sterling Fox, joined by Michael Irvin. We're talking gas prices. And Michael, just looking at some of the headlines this morning, uh, snow is forecast, by the way, if you're driving to the interior of British Columbia from down here on the coast or where you are on the island, uh, you're going to make a ferry ride and then you're going to head to the interior on that Okan- uh, Coquihalla connector, the Okanagan connector from uh, the Coke across to the, it, there's snow. Uh, that basically, <laughs> they're predicting snow uh, overnight and into this morning. So it's, we're not quite done with that stuff yet, Michael, but we will be eventually. And many of us in fact, are going to spend our summer vacation right here in British Columbia. What do we expect uh, looking across uh, the next couple of months as we're now seeing uh, gas prices at the pump coming back? It's around, yesterday it was wide ranging though. Explain that for us. Uh, just driving around the suburbs of Metro Vancouver yesterday, prices went from $1.06, Michael, in some places to $1.18 in others, and they might be 10 miles apart. What's the story with that? Well, for partly, if you if you look uh, within the Vancouver area, there are additional taxes of uh, that that come into play. So, if you drive out to the Abbotsford area, for instance, you'll see generally lower prices because uh, they're outside of that uh, extra tax area. Yep. But what we do see is when when wholesale prices are on the move, whether up or down, you know the, the retail market reacts. Um, not all in unison. I mean, that would be collusion. Um, a, a dealer might decide to drop their price as a result of falling wholesale prices 
very quickly, and generally they do, but it might take half a day or a day before other dealers um, basically drop their price too. Sure. And they're pretty motivated to drop their price once one dealer does because, well, people shop for the best price generally. And uh, so ultimately we see a fair bit of uniformity amongst prices, not because they're talking to each other, but because simply they're looking down the street and wondering why nobody's driving well, exactly. the gas station. Yeah, so l- l- let's t- take a look ahead, extrapolate here a couple of months as we make some plans for summer holidays. Gas is on the rise. Is it likely, Michael, over the next few weeks to return to the typical Metro Vancouver prices in the high 130s, low 140s? Are we going right back to where we left off or might we top out a little below that? Well, I think it's uh, it's likely that we, it won't get that high. Uh, what we will see are refineries adapting to, um, you know, the, the lower demand. And, and demand will stay low uh, for gasoline in Canada and the United States because uh, you know, even with staycations and people driving for that purpose, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people will still be working from home and not commuting downtown and so I think we'll see a reduction in, in demand for gasoline. But at the same time, refiners will have curtailed their production so that they're not filling the terminal storage tanks to the brim with gasoline. And, and that's what caused uh, wholesale prices to decline beyond what the crude price was, was causing the, uh, the pump price to do. So um, we will see uh, higher prices as a result of some increased crude demand globally, mm-hmm. causing you know, crude prices to get out of what was a one-day negative territory into something much like what it was perhaps uh, you know, before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. So, um, yeah, we're, we're going to see higher prices, sadly for consumers, but certainly uh, a little more subdued than probably what we saw you know, prior to COVID-19. Okay, well, that's the, again, it helps to have a sense of uh, what to plan for in terms of budgeting. So certainly no more than we used to pay. That, that's a reasonable budgetary sort of target, right? I think so. Um, you know, predicting crude prices and gasoline prices is a <laughs> dangerous bit of a business, game, of course. <laughs> that's right. But you know, barring anything unforeseeable, you know, that's our best prediction at the can crude. So let's talk a little bit about Alberta crude. This, uh, where are we at this weekend? Oil uh, has been on the proverbial roller coaster ride. We had, as you mentioned moments ago, we had that one day foray into negative territory. Uh, the price has since recovered a little bit. Uh, Western Canadian select is what they call the heavy stuff from Alberta. Where are we this weekend, uh, Michael, with respect to prices and how far off the West Texas intermediate, the classic sort of North American standard, uh, when we talk about the price of a barrel of oil, that's usually what we're talking about. And then there's Canadian oil. What's the difference in price this morning? Well, you know, if you you look at the difference between Western Canada Select, which is a Canadian benchmark out of Alberta Mm -hmm. and uh, West Texas Intermediate, there is a a fundamental difference. And part of the difference is there are different crude qualities. Fundamentally, it's because WCS, the Alberta crude feedstock, cannot get out to market because of a shortage of pipeline capacity to move it. And so that depresses the price in Hardesty, which is kind of the, the equivalent of Cushing, Oklahoma, in terms of the storage hub. So 
the differential I don't have in front of me, but it, in per barrel terms, it's it's in the order of uh, you know ten dollars per barrel. That's right. That seems to be about the the spread, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. That's right. And again, that has mostly to do with uh, Alberta crude being effectively locked in uh, because of a lot of production capacity in Alberta and not enough um, transportation capacity to move that to markets, particularly um, to markets offshore to uh, through to Asia. But of course, that is having everything to do with um, the Trans Mountain Pipeline not being able to produce any more output than it, than it does currently. Yeah, Michael, one other quick question for you, and you're the old pro in this conversation. It's great to have you on, too, by the way. Uh, one argument or one uh, a point of view that keeps getting advanced here, particularly in Western Canada, is uh, when we talk about oil and our oil future and our collective security with petroleum products, some people are, are very uh, adamant about, well, why don't we just build another refinery? That would increase our ability to look after ourselves. Yeah, Cost a little bit of money, but you know we we could borrow. What's 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 the advantage or not of having more well, refining capacity? A little bit of money is in the order of about fifteen billion dollars exactly, for, for yeah. a modern refinery. So uh, you know, if if oil companies really thought that was a good venture, then one would get built. Uh, there'd be other obstacles, such as nobody really willing to have a refinery in their backyard. But but effectively, it, it comes down to the economics of it. Frankly, you know, getting a pipeline to move product is a lot less expensive than building a new refinery and adds an awful lot more flexibility to the overall long-term uh, supply flexibility. So that still is the solution. And, and if, uh, you know, people who uh, don't like the idea of, ref- of a pipeline, probably even more so don't like the idea of a new refinery. So it's a bit of a conundrum. Ah, okay. And you mentioned a uh, final question to you, Mr. Irvin, and it's back to taxation. And as you mentioned, even in Metro Vancouver, if you're outside the, the TransLink tax zone, you're going to pay anywhere from 9 to 12 cents a liter uh, less. And of course, it varies from province to province and even region to region. Uh, is that likely to just remain as is, given how cities like Vancouver, for example, fund a lot of our uh, public transportation infrastructure from gas taxes. That's not likely to change anytime soon, is it? No. And, you know, to be maybe a little cynical, you know, governments right across the country uh, tend to, you know, complain about gasoline prices uh, because, well, you know, they want to satisfy voters. But the fact of the matter is that uh, the easiest way to lower gasoline prices overnight would be to reduce taxes. But of course, um, you know, in, on the part of the governments, that's an important part of revenue that helps uh, healthcare systems uh, be maintained and other services that governments provide. Yeah. Michael Irvin, thanks for this. Great to have some time with you. It's been a while, and we'll do this again soon. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. It's a pleasure as usual, Sterling, and I look forward to the next conversation. I'd like that. Michael Irvin, Senior Vice President with the Kent Group, based in London, Ontario. Michael joining us from Victoria this morning. We had the CEO of the Vancouver Aquarium, OceanWise, which is the company that runs the Vancouver Aquarium. Lasse Gustafsson was on our program a couple of months ago. Uh, this was at the outset of the pandemic, uh, and the people at the aquarium were, were, were trying to, uh, that, at the point uh, they were laying staff off and 
and trying to uh, adjust their uh, operating methods in order to, uh, well, maintain things without, of course, the doors being opened and the all-important cash flow provided by those visitors. And since uh, Mr. Gustafson joined us to talk about how they were going to, well, get through all of this, we've seen the Vancouver Aquarium take some pretty interesting steps. They formed a partnership, for example, with the Vancouver Whitecaps and started distributing masks. And that sold out in a heartbeat. And and there are back orders for that that are going to go on for weeks. And they're nice looking, as a matter of fact. But that's they didn't stop there. And in fact, they've received a lot of community support from a lot of members of the community, two of whom are joining us on the program this morning. They're both chefs. And it's a real pleasure to welcome two of Vancouver's leading chefs to the program. Uh, Chef Alex Chen and Chef Will Liu are with us to talk about seafood chowder and the Vancouver Aquarium. Chef Chen and Chef Liu, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you doing? I am well, thank you. Alex, you're a former Iron Chef. Tell us about uh, your location, and uh, we'll get Will to do the same. But first, what uh, what re- restaurant do you represent? I represent uh, Boulevard Kitchen and Oyster Bar. It's on Burrard and Robson, downtown uh, Vancouver. All right. And Chef Lou, you, sir, are from where? I am currently just one of the chefs who are representing those who are wanting to do something good with the time that we have. Uh-huh. Um, I'm lucky enough that eventually uh, I will be able to work with the aquarium, but until that point, we just want to be able to show our solidarity as a chef community. Interesting stuff. My youngest son is a chef, gentlemen, and uh, I have considerable time and sympathy for your predicament these days. Uh, tell us, uh, Alex, about how you came to uh, come across, uh, intersect with the Vancouver Aquarium. And, and as Will was just saying, uh, lots of chefs uh, with perhaps too much time on their hands looking for something to do, looking for something positive to do. How did you find out about this? Well, I, I was reached out by uh, Chef Lou, uh, regardless, you know, the, I think that it's just the right thing to do in terms of supporting and giving back to the community and then having uh, uh, such an iconic uh, location to represent Vancouver. It's such, a, uh, it's such an institution for us and then it has done so much for us. So for me, just you know, all he had to do was just ask, and, and I, I jumped on board right away. Ah, okay. So, Chef Liu, it's you that I should have asked the question of first, since you got Alex and drafted him on board. So what, what started you on this journey, and how did you intersect with the aquarium? I think uh, the journey has started close to a decade ago for many of us, just because uh, of the work of OceanWise. And, you know, growing up as a chef in Vancouver, you, we see the vicinity of how close we are to the ocean. Sure. And, and to understand what difference we can make. So based on that, I mean, Chef Alex, so many chefs around us, we, we've been working with the Vancouver Aquarium, doing fundraisers and, and just finding ways to educate each other throughout our entire journey as culinarians mm-hmm. and restaurateurs. And so with that being said, now that when, as you mentioned, the news months ago, um, once you can hear that, the aquarium might be closing. I mean, you can see so many people jumping on board to seeing what they can do. And for us, what we can do is use our expertise in the kitchen, use our ideas, use our creativity to to make something tasty so people are inspired to donate. Exactly. So what did you come up with? What is the, what is the dish that you and other chefs, like-minded chefs around Metro Vancouver and beyond, are preparing specifically to help out the aquarium? Wonderful. Yes, we are all creating our version of a sustainable seafood chowder. Okay. So, yeah, and, and it's all because of the good nature and goodwill of all the 
local fishers and, and sustainable uh, suppliers out there who are donating all the products to us. So everything that we're cooking has been donated. All the time and the generosity is all donated from all the chefs who are involved. And, and that's why I feel like it's a, a really good cause to see people like Chef Alex, to see so many others who are binding together to, to show that support based well, on our life, you know, based on what we do for our livelihood. Well, let's uh, let's take a look at this list. And give me a second here, friends, because it, it goes on for a little bit. Boulevard Kitchen and Oyster Bar, that's Alex's restaurant. Popina Canteen, Mac and Ming, Forage, uh, the Heritage Asian Eatery, Fanny Bay Oyster Bar and Shellfish Market, Windsor Meats, Edge Catering, Seaside Provisions, the Hollyburn Country Club, the Naramata Inn, and the Fish yeah. Counter. These are our establishments, uh, the many, many very recognizable names on that list. Are they all doing the same? same chowder will or is each restaurant doing a sort of a variation on a theme they're all doing what is signature to them you know to what each chef is proud to be representing so example chef alex chen i mean he, he's taken on a sable fish dish ah, okay. a, and and it, and every chef is able to showcase what they find is you know something that represents their restaurant but the, the nice part is also, I mean, this, this event is going to go on for until June 8th, which is uh, World's Ocean Day. And that's the day that we want to be able to collect together and give back our donations that we've, that we've gained through this fundraiser. Ah, so the idea is just to stack the cash in a corner and at the end of it all on Ocean's Day, let's count it up and hand it over to the folks at the aquarium. Correct, correct. And so within that time, I think we have so many more donators jumping on board and if you don't mind i just want to thank a few of them oh I mean, go ahead will sure please they're going to be uh fresh line organic oceans we have ocean mama we also have windsor meats um gindara sablefish next gen gluten-free we have intercity packers cisco deluxe seafood and we also have skipper auto coming and the nice part is there's with this outreach there's more and more people reaching out who want to donate there's more and more restaurants reaching out and seeing how they can participate as well and Again, chefs like Alex Chen, like just being on the show, being able to speak with you, it just it just shows that people don't hesitate when they're they're asked to step up for their community. Uh, Chef Chen, Alex, what do you, what sort of fee- feedback are you getting from from clients and uh, customers at uh, the Boulevard Kitchen and Oyster Bar? Are, is this an in demand? You're doing a sable fish dish. Do people know that the proceeds from this particular dish go to help out the aquarium? And and what's the response been? The um, you know it went uh, live on the on our provision uh, list uh, yesterday, so we've been uh, promoting it through uh, different channels. Uh, I'm looking at the sales right now, and and it's been it's been uh, it's been really really uh, uh, just it just exceeding my expectation. I I would assume by the end of uh, uh, by the end of the week we would have been. Um, all the all the commitment would have been fulfilled. So it's uh, it's a lot. It's uh, people are just going through it, and uh, I'm I'm getting a lot of good uh, feedback. Um, yeah, this is is a dish that we're proud of we're using using uh, jindara uh, sablefish, like we cure them, salt, uh, maple syrup, smoking them with apple wood, oh my. and then just uh, replacing the bacon component. So yeah, it's going to be a really really tasty dish. And and uh, Will Lou, what uh, what sort of public response have you been uh, hearing about? I think the public response really is 
again, everything these days is kind of social media based. Of course. But, but the, but the nice part is, you know, yesterday I went to visit all the, the chefs that I could. Uh, I mean, there's, there's amazing chefs out there like chef Ned Bell, who's in the Naramata. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish that we could be cooking there together. But I mean, you can see how far the outreach is going and you can see how far that, that chef community is binding together. And it's not just Vancouver. And I'm sure we can reach further. We can reach further. By going around, um, just sort of checking on everyone yesterday, I was already shocked to see like guests lining up to, to buy this product. Excellent. Not even knowing. And, and it was just the first day. And it was so heartwarming to know that, you know, a message is spread that is meant from the heart and other people will spread it along with that. And it's just, it's just, it's a spreading and, and it's, it's a sea of positivity. Uh, well, I'm almost out of time, but I, I do want, if possible, for you to pass along a website. You were just talking about social media, and that's how the word is getting out about this more than anything else. We're happy to help out here on the radio, of course. Delighted Thank to have you. you both with us. But is there a website that you can direct people to this morning, Will? Of course, yeah. There's www.vanaqua.org slash save VA slash chowder. Okay, so Van Aqua, of course, is the aquarium website. Correct. Send yeah. people to the aquarium website, website and they'll find all about uh, the, the restaurants and uh, the, uh, the seafood chowder. Yes, and we just keep, keep the hope adding more and more chefs and more donators out there. So you'll see this thing continually grow, and, and, and you know, the community will, will respond. Interesting stuff. Gentlemen, both, uh, thank you uh, for joining us this morning. We appreciate what you're doing very much. Of course, the the Aquarium has very very much been a part of this city since 1956. And with any little bit of luck at all, it isn't going anywhere, especially with the kind of community support people like you and those of us who buy your outstanding cuisine are delighted to to show the Aquarium and and its cause. Uh, To Will Liu and Alex Chen, chefs both, thank you, gentlemen. A pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. It's our pleasure. Van Aqua, that's the aquarium website. You want more details on where to find all this great food, check it out. Big space launch coming up in just a few days. The first manned launch from U.S. soil in almost a decade. Here to talk about it, and it's a pleasure to welcome her to the program, science communicator with NASA social alumni, Cosmic Rachel, joining us on the line from Atlanta. Hello there. Welcome to the program. Rachel, Hi, good, good morning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's great to have you with us. Slight delay there. Rachel, uh, tell us about NASA Social Alumni, of which you are a member. NASA Social's been around for over 10 years, hasn't it? Yeah, so I think it's actually kind of funny that, <laughs> that so I'm not like a part of the NASA Social team, but I have been lucky enough to participate in several of these events, and they're super cool. It's kind of a way that NASA provides opportunities for people that are really into communicating through social media mm-hmm. to attend these launches and these events. And I've been able to attend three of them. And it's been so much fun because it's basically the opportunity for an anyday person like me <laughs> to get involved with spaceflight. It's super cool. I'll bet it is. Now, have, you said you've attended three of these space <laughs> launches so far. Now, are you planning on attending? Now, did you attend virtually, Rachel, or did you actually go down and watch the thing take off and go up into space? I actually attended all three in person. Okay. So the first one was at Wallops Flight Facility in Virginia, and then the second two were at Kennedy Space Center. Mm-hmm. And where is this launch? And that's going to be where on May 27th. 
Oh, no, I was just going to ask. I was just confirming the fact that the uh, the Kennedy Space Center in Florida is once again the scene of the launch. Now, with all this social distancing stuff that's uh, supposedly <laughs> at play, a space launch is quite a spectacular event, usually draws a huge crowd. What are you hearing about what they're expecting and how they plan to manage all that? You know, about a week ago, or a few weeks ago, there was a press conference, and the NASA Administrator, Jim Bridenstine, you know, he admitted, like, we love having these big events for launches, and especially this one. This is huge. And But he did say we would like everyone to stay home if they can, which I know not, it's still going to be a huge event because people are still going to travel down there. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of ways to watch it virtually from home, and that's what I'm going to do. Oh, so you're gonna you're gonna take a pass on on driving down. You're gonna stay and enjoy it from the comfort <laughs> from the comfort of your home. Now, um, the this is different too because this time around, it's a SpaceX. It's a private company mm-hmm. that's doing this. How much of a difference is right. that is that going to make? Do you think? I think it's interesting because it kind of opens up opportunities for other companies to think, well, SpaceX can do it. Why not me? <laughs> And I know that this is SpaceX's first crewed. Uh, it's going to be their demo two, which will open up up for the if this goes well for more flights to bring you know more astronauts up to the International Space Station, eventually the Moon, which is super exciting. <laughs> Well, sure. Now we're hearing that, of course, this is all. This is also part, though. SpaceX is 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 one of Musk's companies, as you well know, Rachel. And Musk right. a, and others, he has competitors, uh, is very much interested in space travel. I think it's going to mm-hmm. be about a million bucks a ticket or something absurd like that. But he's got a long lineup of people <laughs> yeah. who, who want to buy tickets. So, is this, in that sense, this is also part of partly a dry run for what lies ahead for that company? of Musk's plans, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know Blue Origin, they're also one of the companies that won one of the contracts for the um, HLS program. It'll be Blue Origin, Dynetics, and SpaceX right. developing the next human lander systems. They're super cool. And I know that they're collaborating with other companies. And so there's definitely some competition, which is always good, because it always promotes, like, yeah, let's make bigger and better and obviously safer space travel. And one of the things that Musk has tried to do uh, is is recover. So is mm-hmm. uh, the is the notion here that they're going to send Bob and Doug up from uh, from the Kennedy Space mm-hmm. Center this week? Uh, is the spacecraft that takes them up recoverable in the way that uh, w- w- it's reusable? So, to my understanding, they haven't decided how long Bob and Doug are going to be up on the space station. Maybe between one and four months. And that they will bring them back down. I'm, I wish that's something that I did know if it actually was recoverable. But they are going to land and be recovered by a SpaceX team. Mm-hmm. So, to my understanding, I mean, it, it should be re- it, it is reusable. I don't speak on behalf of NASA for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> trying to convey everything that I do know. <laughs> so, Rachel, how does NASA, of course, is is the, the pivot point. NASA is the hub for all of this activity, and SpaceX and these other companies that you just mentioned are all players, but it's all, and NASA is the coordinator still. It's still a NASA event, isn't it? Right, so it is, you know, a NASA event, 
where, I mean, there, of course, there are other organizations like ESA and a lot of other countries that do have their space programs, but this is a NASA event with SpaceX. And uh, what sort of crowds now? I know that you're going to do the right thing and you're going to stay home and you're going to observe this <laughs> with great rel- I sense a, a, a real reluctance in your voice because you've been to three of them live and you know what a buzz it is, but you're going to stay home. <laughs> you're you're going to stay home anyway. How many other people do you think are going to stay home or is, is this going to attract probably pretty much the same huge gang they usually do? Well, actually, since NASA, the course, the administrator said, we'd love to everyone stay home and enjoy it from, you know, the safety of their homes. They do have, you're able to actually witness basically everything at home, including the tests and the pre-flight. And they are doing a NASA social virtual event. So they are encouraging social media users like me to stay home and participate as this is actually the first worldwide NASA social event, because normally it is only for U.S. citizens, but this virtual event is open to everyone that wants to join, and it's super cool. So it's a global interactive event. Yes, it is. (laughs) It is. I know they're going to, I think on the 27th, they are going to host some virtual tours. We're going to have some guest speakers, so they are still making it as much of a party for us at home as if we were actually there. <laughs> I know the NASA social team has worked very hard to make this exciting for all of us, and even the, within our home. <laughs> and the other, adv- the other advantage, and you know this having seen three liftoffs live, the other advantage is that you get mm-hmm. angles at home. And when you're there on site, you're, you have your angle and that's it. You, you stay where you, you stay put. But if you're at home, you get 27 angles from all the shots and all the locations. So you really actually do see more, don't you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I know you can you can hear everything and just the feeling of being there watching it go up. It's always very exciting. But I would never want anyone to feel like they're missing out anything by not actually being at the launch. Because on NASA TV, they record everything so beautifully and they have the speakers. Mm-hmm. So even though I am going to be at home, it doesn't discourage me from feeling like this is anything less than if I was there. I think everyone should feel the same way. So, Rachel, as we, uh, we wrap up our conversation, direct us to the website. Yeah. Where, where do we go on Thursday to be part of this global audience enjoying the space launch? So it's going to be NASA TV. If you look up on Google, if you look at NASA TV, they are going to put everything there, not even just the launch. They're going to have recordings before the launch. I mean, it's, it's an all-day event. So all right. Don't just tune in at the time when they're launching. Be there the entire day. Excellent. Rachel, thanks for this. We appreciate it. Enjoy Thursday. It sounds like you are already uh, pretty jazzed up about it and have fun. NASA TV, friends, is where we can all go and, and join Rachel in watching uh, the launch. Eight- Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.